Hello, sports fans. Welcome to another episode of RTFM, the internet's only podcast. I am Aaron King. You can find me at aaronsrpgs.tumblr.com because Twitter makes me too sad. Uh, yeah, I'm Max. You can find me lots of places on the internet, including Twitter, even though it makes me sad. But also, you can newly find me in Toronto. Um, please find me. Toronto is not where all of my friends live anymore. <laughs> I need new friends. Um, the old ones are fine, but now they're far away. Yeah. Uh, and I do want to say, normally I save this for the end. I do want to say up front, we do have a Discord. There's a link in the show notes. Um People have had trouble finding it because I usually only mentioned it at the very end. So if you want to do that, you can hang out with us online if Twitter makes you sad. And then we are also at patreon.com slash rtfmcast, which you can back for only a dollar. Someone recently looked at it and was like, oh, I didn't realize it was like really affordable. Um, <laughs> we are so, cheap and easy. Yeah, Thank there's you. a $1 option. And then if you are well off, there's a $5 option that gets you the same stuff you are just giving us some more money um and there are tons of episodes there uh zine club stuff where we talk about more recent uh zines and all sorts of other stuff some free games from me and from max i think and all sorts of weird things uh that's it today yeah we are talking about dream askew slash dream apart I is that, had is a it, is this a backslash? Yeah. Is this the second? Is this the first time we've ever covered a second book by the same person? Uh, we've covered Mister Dungeons and Dragons' books a lot. Okay, what you know? What no, I we've mean. covered uh, Cyberpunk, the Pondsmith. Right, because we every we always do a Pondsmith. That's a gimmick. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. This is genuine because <laughs> these ones are good. Yeah. So this is a uh, a twofer, two games, one book. Uh, Dream Askew is by Avery Alder, whose Quiet Year we have covered, The Quiet Year. And then Dream Apart is by Benjamin Rosenbaum. Uh, this was based on a prototype zine released by Alder in 2013 and was kickstarted in 2018. Uh, it's, the belo- it's the basis for Belonging Outside of Belonging, which is like a genre of game, and No Dice, No Masters, which is kind of a mechanical structure of the game. Maybe we'll get into, are they separable? Are they different? Um, also, also, the reason we are talking about them, because there was some progression of our conversation about moves and bad D&D yeah. brain. And... We have been talking about getting away from D&D. We've been talking about like high trust play where people are making rulings instead of uh, looking to the dice to decide things. And this is a diceless game. Not the first, but I think in like common discussion these days probably one of the most common yeah uh, no no randomizers at all no cards no jenga tower uh no it's all player controlled yeah um, i've played it i've played it i played it with strangers <laughs> i never play games whoa uh, was it did you play dream askew or dream apart yeah we played i played dream askew not entirely with strangers but with a few strangers um at uh, breakout con actually a chunk of years ago um which is 
coming up again in March. And if you happen to be a person coming to town for Breakout Con, also be my friend. Um, yeah. I, I wanted just to sound go there. really thirsty. <laughs> that was what we were going to spend the Patreon money on. I have the good old family emergency. Yeah. But yeah, I played at Breakout Con with a wonderful facilitator, and it was kind of um, largely on the recommendations of uh, Natalie Zed, uh, who has joined us before, Natalie Zena Walshots, um, who like kind of dragged me kicking and screaming into this experimental <laughs> no dice game. <laughs> and then I had a great time. So shout out to all of them. I think the facilitator's name was Eli. Um and was genuinely, just legitimately wonderful in introducing all of us to the framework and the game itself. Um, and one of the things that I guess we'll probably talk about is like the game says that if you have a, a certain number of people that the facilitator should be a player. Um, and they, uh, the person who's facilitating for us did not play. And I think that was the right choice. <laughs> oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. did they play any of the so before i start asking questions um i'm gonna skip over some of the structure of the book mm -hmm. which i find not bad but strange not how i would have structured this book um but this is descended from power by the apocalypse stuff there are playbooks uh for characters and for the setting elements. The playbooks have moves, like in Power by the Apocalypse, traditional stuff, but instead of rolling dice, there is this token economy. And you spend tokens to make these strong moves that are basically like, I am being successful, I am looking good, I am imposing my will upon the narrative. But the only way to get tokens is to either make a weak move, which is like, I am at my most vulnerable, I am showing my weak side, I am looking like shit, or to play into the lures of other characters, which is kind of like if you there's like a psychic character, and if you ask them to use their powers on you, that's their lure. So you get a token, not from that player, but from the general shared pool of tokens. Um, so it's built around this ebb and flow of people needing to either put themselves in the trust of others, like the lures to get a token or to i guess i would say fail quote unquote like what looks like a failure in most games uh yes. get you that token um you kind of just play there's no win state um there is no gm required but it does have some lead leadership for if you're going to facilitate this game um does that cover the basics yeah, I think so. It's it, it is largely meant to be like a single session kind of wrapped yes. up, resolved. There's a lot of help for like how to time that out or a lot of commentary on like how to time mm -hmm. that out. Dream Askew um, is like a post-apocalyptic queer mm, conclave yes. kind of dealing with the stresses of that conclave while also resisting uh, you know, the the remaining corpos or normies or exploiters that live outside of that enclave. Uh, Dream Apart is set in a 19th century fantastical Jewish shtetl. Uh, and so it's a, a it's, this is the belonging outside belonging thing. Like you, both of these games are about people who are ostracized or marginalized, living in their own community, trying to resist the people outside that community uh, that uh, bear them ill will. 
but also dealing with the stresses of trying to create community because people are different and have different goals, even if they do belong to the same ethnicity or religion or marginalized sexuality or gender. Yeah. I think that's it. It's, <laughs> it's extremely so succinct. No, it's good. It's so good. Uh, uh, yeah. It's like a very short, it's a, it's a short book, which is nice. Um, even though it contains two games and it's very, uh, yeah, I think we'll probably talk a lot about the whole framing of marginalized folks as like central to both the game genre and the game mechanic. Um, but yeah, token economies, <laughs> it's a thing. It's the big, I feel like it's the big, it's, it, it is the thing that gets talked about a lot in relation to this game, even though I don't actually think it's the big thing about the game, but that's just, I think the, the goals of the game re vulnerability, yeah. intimacy, marginalization is much bigger and more notable than the fact that that doesn't use dice. But I do get that within RPG space, people are like, no dice. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> and it is, it's and, a cool, it's a very suave way of taking dice out apart by the apocalypse. Like the first time I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, that's brilliant. But it's just kind of like, it's brilliant. Great. Thank you. <laughs> you know? And then it kind of drives it. Like it's such a good, clear idea that it just like works all on its own. It came fully formed in this. I mean, not fully formed. Avery, do I normally say designers first names or last names on this? I don't know. <laughs> the designer, the writer writes like this is, it started as a apocalypse world hack. There's still the psychic maelstrom. There's still direct references to apocalypse world, like in a fun way, I think. Um, but yeah, she also economy. comments on it being like not complete intentionally so that you have to like complete it through playing it. Yeah, we'll get into that too, I bet. Which, yeah, um, I mean, whatever. But yeah, the token economy on its own is just like, feels like such a good complete thing that once you understand it, it's like, oh, cool. I could write a mini game using that system on yeah. an afternoon when I'm feeling inspired or whatever. Like it's such a good idea, but it feels so complete that I don't feel like I have a lot to say about it. Yeah, it's very simple. Even It's not even like once you get it, it's like do one of these moves, get a token to play into a lure, get a token, spend a token to access these moves. Like it's just like pay for the hidden menu or whatever. Right. Um, except nothing's hidden. <laughs> so right. uh, yeah, I. it's funny because it, it's, I, I am such a huge lover of randomization. <laughs> Right. That like it's so good and also I want random things. <laughs> um but it plays very nicely, it plays very smoothly. I think it like I think one of the things that is notable like I think it is doing something that I feel like I comment on all the time, but that very few games do, where it is mechanically its mechanics are imbued with its philosophies in a way yes. that a lot of games just take a mechanic they like and throw stuff on top of it. And I, I would say that actually a lot of games don't actually have philosophies embedded within them. Um, and this one does. This has this is a game, I think, that is very apparently about beliefs. <laughs> You know, yeah, the both whole in, in, as like section. designer beliefs and the narratives of the game. Like it's very all it's a theme of everything to do with the game. Yes, there's it's a it's a slow roll intro that has a lot to say about how they would like you to feel 
as you are prepping for this game, as you are playing it, as you are learning it. Um, I think it's cute. I think it's a, <laughs> I'm, it's, it's so against what people think you should do with a game. And I think, yeah, it's like my brain, I say, I want this as an appendix, right? Because I want to start learning how to play right away. Yeah, because... you should shut that game part. You should shut that part of your brain down. <laughs> well, but it's also like it's if you were in game design Twitter for the last five to ten years, you have read versions of all of this. Um, if yes you and read no story game blogs, you have read versions of this. You haven't read this exactly, but it's just uh, it's interesting. It's clear why it's up front. I don't disparage it. I don't think they were wrong in putting it up front. Um, if I were the king of this project, which of course this project is opposed to having any kind of king, but if I were the king of this project, I would have cut half that and put it in the back. Not cut it out, just put it in the back. But uh, I think I get why it's there. I often I like agree it. with you. No, like I often <laughs> agree with you. In most games, I am 100% on board for put it in the appendix because I actually think most games are not very good at saying what they want to say. And so it is expendable. Yeah. Right? Like I think that like the first 20 pages of most games are just people fapping on, not saying anything about, not saying anything unique and not adding to the play experience. And those are the ones where I'm like, yeah, we've read this before. You don't have to tell me what a game is or whatever. But I feel like this game is so anchored in being a ritual, which is what all games are. And every game manual is a guideline to a ritual. And this game just knows it. And a lot of a, games a don't know war. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the the setup to me is is a part of that ritualization that is, I don't think should be optional really is what I'm saying. And I think that yeah. putting things in appendix makes them optional. And more often than not, the setup is not a part of the ritual and I think can be, or is like designer commentary, which, which absolutely is useful and good and cool, but doesn't need to be read to play the game. And I feel like, like one of the things, one of the things that we're talking around here is like, there's a recipe for a food you could make because it, there is this whole conversation about like, cook for you the people that you're meal. playing this yeah. game with yeah. make sure that there is food and comforts around like think about the space that you're playing in think about the sounds of the space that you're playing in and these a lot of people i think would say these are optional and i will totally own that like when i played this at a convention there was no meal and the space was noisy and gross you know like it's not whatever that we were in control of a lot of those things so it's not like those those were followed but i yeah, don't eli why didn't you bring a crispy kale <laughs> Where dish is, where's my crispy kale um and, but I do think that even just the reading of them is part of the ritual, like acknowledging that this is how this is supposed to go. Like, sure, you can get rid of eggnog at Christmas or whatever, but at some point somebody needed to tell you that often there's eggnog at Christmas for reasons. You know, like there, there is something... In, why, why is there eggnog? I actually have no, so everybody can get drunk. <laughs> okay. I just like eggnog. I assume there's some like historical reason. I don't do Christmas either, so it's a bad mm. example. But like, <laughs> you know, like there are all these like, like conventions and customs and rituals that we do as part of these things. And they all have reason to them. And this, fin they feel, they feel like soft game mechanics is what I want to say. 
cooking a meal, thinking about your space, thinking about the, the, the sound of your space. I don't know why that's the one that keeps sticking out to me, but they feel like soft game mechanics and therefore they feel less optional than a lot of the framings or introductions to other game sections. Right. Is what I will say. Um, and there is a lot of designer commentary around PBTA games that say that it was a mistake to put the GM principles and the player principles after the rules, um, that those are the vital parts of so many PBTA games. And maybe that is something similar to what we're saying right now. Yeah, I feel like that was also our take when we were talking about it. <laughs> it was like, yes, these should be up front. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, because I do think that like what differentiates it, this is part of the belonging outside belonging thing, right? Where what differentiates belonging outside belonging is not mechanics. It is play philosophy. It is like goals. It is identities and and all of these all of these kind of softer things than roll to hit, you know. Then and this is so funny because I feel like usually you're the one who's like the soft social things. And I'm the one who's like, the system. I expected Uh, you to be like, get that bullshit out of this one. I'm not into it. What's funny is as I was rereading this, because I've read it a couple of times, um, I was like, oh, I like this one so much better than I like The Quiet Year. And I don't know why. I cannot articulate why it is that I like this one so much better than The Quiet Year. Because The Quiet Year is undeniably more popular than Dream Askew. And I, but there's something about this one that feels like, warm and cozy and even though it could be full of conflict and violence and and difficult emotions there's something that feels like it carries a lot and maybe it's just where i'm I'm at right now where i'm like thinking a lot about queer game mechanics and whatever and and it just it feels like it carries a lot of those things and does a lot of things that i feel like games are not game not games game designers are not bold enough to do yeah and well, and I think the Quiet Year, a testament to like the writing skill is, Quiet Year is like, we will we we have come out of something terrible and something terrible will happen again. We have this little bit of time in between that, and the writing style is very sparse and very direct. Uh, the cards, none of them are like, oh, take a moment, sip your beverage, and consider this. It's like someone in the community has a problem with the leadership or, you know, it's like very straightforward. Uh, It's almost always problems, rarely solutions, especially as the game goes on into the later seasons. Um, And so quite your imagines, maybe small successes, but overall you will fail. (laughs) Things were bad before things will be bad again. You might be able to eke out one little good success in between. Whereas this game is like, things are a mess. The mess is part of the joy. There is bad stuff outside of this. But this is about learning to live with that mess and like build bridges inside your own community and change and accept the things that bother you or make change. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's it's more very hopeful. gay. <laughs> it's very gay. I do think there is part of it that is like, it is explicitly... Like the quiet year, while I think that everything that Avery does is really queer, <laughs> there is yeah. something about the explicitness of it. And I'm talking largely about Dream Askew because I, it's the one I'm more familiar with and it's the one I've actually played. So I have much more, many more feelings about it. And also a lot of the book 
uses Dream Askew as the example. So there's a little bit more. I feel like Dream Askew is a little bit more present in the book than Dream Apart. Right. And it was the prototype for mm-hmm. this book was just that one. So. Um, and so, and it does just feel like it carries a little bit of that in a way that I don't feel like the quiet year necessarily wanted to. And so it doesn't like, I don't think that's contentious. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I'm feeling soft about it today. That's good. Uh, that's... But I like, I, welcome, I, was I like, welcome soft max. Welcome to the podcast. Soft max. Mm, it's new. It is the first, <laughs> the first podcast of the new year. So, you know, oh, here we go. 2024. This, this is, is 2024, Max. Uh, very different. Actually, very different in many, many tangible ways. Uh, maybe it will come with some intangible ways as well. Um, yeah, it, there's, I want it, like, in reading it, I was like, oh, I want to play it proper. I want to, like, make the food yeah. <laughs> and sit around and eat it. There's a, there's a comment, and this is something that I think a lot of people would have the reaction of, like, why is this before I learn how to play the game? But there's a, a line about, like, having people over for a meal before you play so that you can get that socialization out and reconnect with those people before you play the game. And... It's one of those things where I'm like, I think that should be the default. Like we keep doing this thing where it's all about like trying to find more time to schedule and play our campaigns and drop in, drop out and make it smoother and less and like quicker and faster and less of a commitment. And I like the statement of this is a commitment be in it versus here's how you streamline everything so that you can get in and out of winning that dungeon in an hour. You know, there's something (laughs) there's something that is so resistant to it that I really enjoy that I was like, oh, I'd like to just make the meal and have some friends over. Cause there's, you always lose the first hour of an in-person gaming session to just hanging out. So why not make it intentional? Well, the joy for me of in-person gaming that I didn't realize until the start of the pandemic was that people would arrive across half an hour and you could see them come in and like set down their coats and put, the bubble waters in the fridge or whatever. And like, you could get a sense of how everyone was feeling as they filtered in. Whereas like a scheduling an online call, you're all kind of there within five or 10 minutes. You don't see how they stand, how they move, you know, you don't see them trudge through the door or come in really happy with good. You know, it's just sort of like we're here, we're staring at the screen. Maybe we're seeing each other. Maybe we're not like, I'm not saying, online gaming is worse. I'm so thankful that I can like play games with you and with people who have been on the show, people who haven't. Um, but it's like still you said, worse, there's, <laughs> well, I am glad to have the option. Yes, I'm glad same. that we can hang out with Aaron Lim who lives on the other side of the world, you know? Yeah. Um, but there is a special joy to having people come slowly into the house. Uh, like you said, it's uh, the start of a ritual and there is a, it is much easier to sense and incorporate those different energies, not to get all woo-woo, but... No, we're doing it. 2024. So it's our woo year. <laughs> we're doing it. Happy woo year, everybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the game making explicit space for that uh, is, is cool. I wouldn't be surprised if both of the designers, either of the designers were like actually setting the stage is just as important as playing the game is really what I mean when I say like moving that to an appendix. I think the importance in the design intent might not be, they might be of equal weight 
you know? Yeah. Even if we yeah. all know that not everybody's making a meal. In fact, very few people have probably made that meal who have played this game. Um, Did I tell you I've been going to a game, uh, an in-person game where I get to be a player and no one brings food? What? I brought snacks. And the there, so two of the people involved host. Monsters. There are two others. I don't think either any of them listen to the show. I'm so sorry if you do. <laughs> I'm like calling you out. I'm not calling anyone out. I calling them into snackville i'm calling you into snack town please there's empty houses here move (laughs) in to snack town um i've never played in a game where everyone doesn't bring something whether it's like just a little bubble water or a six pack of beer or a bag of chips uh or you know uh, let me put the order in for delivery and i'll cover some of it if you want to help me cover tip or whatever like it is so alien to me and I, d- I don't think it's bad. I just don't understand. And so reading in this game, like, here's a recipe for each game. Uh, make sure everyone's eating and stuff. It's like, this feels closer to my people. Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine but I've, not I've been in, Right. I've been enjoying these people. I'm going to convert them to snack followers. Uh, yes, you must. So You must move them into your neighborhood of snack followers. <laughs> uh but yeah it's i mean yeah that's i that do we want to cover more of the intro stuff it's about setting the stage it's about building vibes it's about uh creating a space there's asking and correcting um if you're not sure about uh like a historical component of 19th century shuttle life or if you uh mess up someone's gender or something there's a whole section about like oh, actually, it's just this, but don't worry about it. We can keep moving on. You know, it's just, it sets a conversational tone. And I know we've talked about that kind of stuff a lot. Like the no Nazis allowed, Nazis can't play this game. Corpos get out kind of thing. Um, Yeah, I I think it's important. Yeah. I think it remains important. Um, like there's also like the safety tool, like it has its own, the game has its own proposed safety tool. It's just called pause. You just say pause and the game pauses and then you discuss whatever it is that required the pause. Um, yeah, I think it remains important. I think that if we can find, if your if your game has more than 16 pages, you can find somewhere to put a statement of your politics in. Um Like, I think there's some allowances for like little artsy zines that are very short, but like, everybody's out here making 60 to 100 page books you can throw some stuff about what you think is right in the world in there um (laughs) in fact what are you doing making anything if you're not putting some statement out into the world about what you think is right um you that's that's the point of creative output just in case anybody was unclear about what the point of artistic and creative output is it is putting out what you think is important in the world important Uh, is i would agree with right i don't know yeah that seems like too big a topic for me to ad lib on (laughs) I just think that like, if you don't, if you don't have an opinion about what is right or wrong in the world, then what's the, what is the point? Um, but yes, I am hardlined about these things. (laughs) That is, that is what I think the point of art is in fact, is to make statements, political, personal, uh, about the world. So do more of that (laughs) in your game books. Um, and yeah, like, sure. It, it's not a rule. It's not, you're not a cop. Don't be a cop. You can't actually enforce anything you put in as with the rest of your game, you can't enforce any of it. But I think my difficulty with the idea of like, well, that's not going to stop Nazis. is like, yes. And it's not going to 
force people to roll d20 to hit. You're literally just making a book of suggestions. That's all you're doing. Yeah. Uh, suggest important and cool things. And yeah, right. people will follow them or not, you know? Yeah. And the weird split, we talked about it on the last episode, between mechanical rules, oh, yes, everyone will follow these, versus social rules, oh, no, don't put social rules in your game. No one will follow them. It's interesting. Like, I think... Again, I want to keep spinning around that and orbiting that idea, and like, why is one so accepted and why not the other? I think that's what, uh, I, what like really stands out about this game is that it is not it is not shy about making an abundance of those right. statements, an abundance and of suggestions. Does that get more weight, or does it come from the lack of mechanical rules? I don't know. I don't. That just came to me. Yeah, I mean, I think they're probably related. Like, I feel like people yeah. feel less are less open to hearing that in games that are larger too, right? Like, if you, myself included, if you hand me a D and D length book and it has the same percentage, what like I would say a third of this book is those statements, and if right. a third of a three hundred page book was those statements, I'd fatigue at them also, you know. But I'm also <laughs> fatiguing at everything else that's in that book, so I don't think that necessarily even you know is yeah. is against the whole idea because it's. D&D has impossible grappling rules, and this game has impossible grappling with my feelings rules. <laughs> but you should still try. <laughs> that is not stopping anybody from grappling. Oh, all right, everybody. I'm going to take 10 minutes on my turn to figure out how to grapple with my feelings. Yeah. I know I roll athletics, but I'm not sure what happens after that. Well, it's funny because I think about this game in the context, and this might be intentional also because I do know that... Avery, at least. I don't know why, but now we're doing a first name. I've never met Avery. We're, do, we're doing a first name. It feels it's, right, even though it's weird. Um, <laughs> is a person who I think does a lot of like game design, game theory thinking and yes. investigation. I mean, directly like, directly or indirectly descended from the Forge. Uh, I think she was active on those boards, but is like into theory and talking things out and pulling the, you know, opening the hood up and messing with things. Yeah, and I'm not just saying this because I literally started a job nine calendar days ago that requires this to be my profession, but it, there is, you know, when you start to dig into play theory and game design theory and all of these things, there it is, it is kind of understood that games are ways in which we learn ourselves and other people and play is certainly a way in which we learn who we are as human beings it's literally how we learn who we are as human beings that's why it's right. so present when we're when we're young right and and i think there is an acknowledgement of that in a lot of academic and theoretical circles about what games are and can be and then there is like what i would identify as like commercial gameplay circles which i think is a little bit some in some in some contexts, it's more useful for me to say <laughs> academic theoretical versus commercial is more useful than like major versus indie or whatever, right? Because I think there is a lot of indie design that is still really commercially focused. That so much of the design conversation is about how do I make a good product? How do I sell it? How do I set up the Kickstarter? Whatever. And to me, right. a lot of that is like, eh. and I mean, yeah, we want our friends to make a living and not be destitute. What and I want, want is for them to not have to make a living off of their creative output, <laughs> right, right? Exactly. Like, that's what I like, actually want. <laughs> we want immediately no one to be poor, which often mm -hmm. can mean mm -hmm. you got to learn to sell your games. In the long run, we want to destroy money and banking. 
Yeah. Um, and I like fully support anybody who's trying to get their stuff out there to get a good paycheck out of it. I also think that might make your game a little lesser. I might, it might make it, it makes it, you know, more valuable in one realm, commercialization, and often less valuable in another realm, theoretical and design wise. But not that there can't be some that overlap, but I think, I think often you're, you're gaining in one realm to at the expense of the other. Um, and I think that that, that whole con all that to say the whole kind of understood elements of game design as being quite personal and quite identity based and identity responsive and development and, and in development in a part of like identity development makes this game make a lot more sense because it is trying like makes the, yeah, here's some hard rules for how to grapple with your feelings, bro statement a little bit like less shocking because to me i look at this as like this sits very comfortably in all of the like game design research or whatever that i've ever done or theoretical research that i've ever done as like those statements about like sit with your feelings this is about who you are as a person try and negotiate those feelings with other people invite people into those feelings because they may help you like it may become not difficult, you know, like it might look difficult on paper. And then if you actually like trust everybody a little bit and set this up so you can trust everybody and kind of go through these rules, you might discover that it's much easier to deal with your feelings in this context because I, the designer, have actually like thought about how difficult it is for you to have your emotions here and have like taken that into, and that doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody, but like that is a part of the consideration of this design. Um, and I think that is pretty rare actually um in a lot of tabletop like like commercial tabletop game play design whatever um yeah i want to take that i think you're right i want to connect it some to our last episode um i was joking about moving stuff to the appendix in this but there is an appendix explicitly about hey you're not used to diceless games you're not used to GMless games. Here's four pages on this. It's called Troubleshooting the Transition. What a good title. <laughs> so good. Um, uh, and so I think this is, it's such a nice little appendix. And it's also kind of the juice of what we have been talking about for two main episodes now and, and a Patreon one as well. Um, and it's about like, so, so much of our like utopian thinking is like, we've built a thing and now everything's fine and no one fights. And my neighbors will never annoy me again because everyone lives the way I live in this perfect utopia. They've all been brought to my right way of thinking. Uh, and this game is not that. Both of these games are about like, your neighbor's going to annoy the shit out of you <laughs> and you will be given the option to call the cops on them. And like, you know, this person is still engaging in this behavior that you thought the community had left behind in their kind of isolation from the mainstream world. What are you going to do about it? Um, and both of those things fall into this realm of like imagining that perfect future leaves out some really hard steps of like helping people, healing people, teaching people, allowing yourself to be helped, healed, and taught. Um, and so I don't know. I just want to get into that part because I also really want to talk about dream apart 
because I really want to play it. But maybe that's all I need to say is like, I would play the shit out of Dream Apart if anyone wants to play it. Yeah, I'd be totally interested in trying it out as well because I have such positive feelings about Dream Askew. I do think that the the I also liked all of the the chapter about helping people out. And also there's a statement this isn't in that chapter, but like there's a statement in the beginning that is about play being a form of learning and I feel like that's bookended by that yes section like very Um, literally yeah (laughs) this is the end of the book we're gonna come back to this stuff um Um, that is just about like both learning in a in a more mechanical context of learning how to use this game and then also learning like how to interact with other people and how to ask questions nicely and respectfully or whatever right like there's all this stuff in here um that is about it being educational which makes it sound so boring but it's not you know like it's (laughs) Like, I get that that is the, the connotation of like, oh, it's an yeah. educational game. And it's like, well, it's not an educational game. It's like a social education game, which right. means it's as fun and interesting as human beings are, you know? Yes, like to me, a- it feels educational the way like going to a convention or a conference in a field or a topic that you love mm-hmm. feels educational. Like you go out there and people are doing wild shit you never even thought of. That's amazing to learn. People are doing great things in the field that you are like precisely deeply interested in. And it's great to learn from them. Yeah, it's it's educational. Hang out also. afterward. It's socially educational. Yeah, it's also educational in that way that like meeting new people is educational. You know, like it's fun to, to meet new people and learn about them. And sometimes that is gross because they're gross, and sometimes it's fun because they're flirting. <laughs> like it's whatever. You know, like um, it. Yeah, it's it's nice. It is nice that there is a bunch of oh, this is a this is an idea that we haven't been confronted with on mass before. So here's here's some help. Here's yeah. some off-ramping from what you're used to getting into um, it. And I just want to cover like the two big headings under troubleshooting the transition and the little headings. We don't have to get deep into it, but like if people have been getting into this mini series of learning new ways to think about games or whatever, like I think these headings will do exactly what we were saying, like sending people off into interesting directions to think about. Um the first big heading under troubleshooting the transition is feeling under pressure, running out of ideas. And so this is, I think, speaking to like the dungeon master mindset of like, oh no, the players ruined my plans. Uh, oh no, they're this NPC that I thought was a joke is all of a sudden they're in love with him and they want to marry him. Uh, how do we move that along? And the subheadings under that are Take it slow, look to your sheets, delegate to the other players instead of to Dyson Prep. This is the hard one for, this is the difference between Old Max and Woo Max. It's the juice. It's the game. <laughs> and invent backstory on the fly, which invent backstory on the fly is really scary until you go back to take it slow or delegate to other players. Um, the idea that one person isn't responsible for um coming up with all this stuff. And there are some really good sections in this game about uh, like, oh, I am this Klezmer player in Dream Apart who gets a token when I like execute this crazy scheme. I've had this crazy scheme. I'm this adventurous traveling musician and I execute it and I get it done great. And I spend a token, right? Yes, I spend this token to do it well. Um, And they talk about well, you can start planting those seeds early on and you can ask other players to help you. Other players might 
ask you to help them with a crazy scheme so that when the time comes, you can spend that token and execute that move. And we've seen it all happen on screen, quote unquote on screen. But the book also says, if the time comes and you have that token and you want to spend it, you can spend it and say that and then look to other players to be like, is it okay that if I've had this crazy scheme going with your person the whole time and we just haven't seen it yet? Or can we invent this you know, rich person that I've been doing the scheme on the whole time and, and now that NPC becomes important and kind of spends time on the screen? And I think... Um, I think that's a hard part for some people to get into. It's like, have you heard of Quantum Ogre? No. Yes. Like, but no, yes. <laughs> this is the uh, everything's a 2D6 goblins or whatever. It's close. It's like, oh, the DM had this ogre encounter planned. And it was on their, you know, the path splits and the ogres are hanging out on the eastern path. But the players take the western path. And they, the DM wants to use that ogre encounter. So... They put it on the, the eastern path that the players took. And it's a quantum ogre, and that's like unfair to the players. Why should they get hit with this ogre encounter when they didn't choose the dangerous path kind of thing? Uh, and that's like in OSR, it is bad to have those ogres exist in a non-state and you put them wherever the players go. Because um, that's not realistic, quote-unquote, or there's not verisimilitude. In my brain, I'm just like, none of it's real. <laughs> I'm yeah, making all this not, shit up not, anyway. There isn't versatility. Uh, that's not a thing. But in this to have a game expressly say, both are fine. You know, you can have this big plan coming through the whole session and kick it off at the end. That feels great for these reasons. Or you can kick it off when the whim strikes you. And uh, that feels good in a different way. Yeah, it's... It's interesting because a lot of these um, little like snippets of advice are like good GM advice also, right? Like kicking it back to the players or whatever, inventing backstory on the fly. Like these are all good things. Uh, even just taking it slow is great. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's funny because there's the facilitator, but it's GM-less. You know, like it's this weird like, but there is still somebody helping everything go well, along I, smoothly. It's just they're not in control of the narrative. Right. I think the, the facilitator is like a suggested role if if many of the people haven't played before. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the buck stops here kind of in a, a weird way. Yeah. But I think if you've all played this a bunch, there is no facilitator. Yeah. And I'm like, I feel more positively about this breaking up of GM responsibilities. Cause a lot of this is just saying like, if you're used to playing, you can just have a little bit of GM brain as a shorthand, <laughs> you know, like it's not as a yeah. treat. You can have a little bit of GM brain, make it up on the fly, uh, ask the players what they mean. You know, like that, those are good GM principles also is like, Oh, what's like, we can't come up with a consequence when you're playing a PBTA game, ask the players what the consequence is. You know, like this is every time you fumble, you can just be like, Hey, I'm sitting at a table full of creative people who I really right. value the input of. Maybe I should ask them for their input. <laughs> right. And in, in trophy, I think it says like, if the player fails a role, you just ask them like, what's the worst thing that could happen to you right now? Yeah. And so they good. know their character and will pro hopefully will answer honestly and help you out. And then that thing can happen. Or you can be like, wow, that sounds terrible. I'm going to be nice and offer you a less evil one. <laughs> I don't know. Um, should we move on to fizzling dragging or nothing yeah. at stake? 
this is like this was my favorite spread. It's a two-page spread at the end of the book. It's the second big head- heading under troubling the transition, um, and it is advice for if you're running without a GM, it can be hard to make things hard. Right? It can be hard to be like, oh, you're a klezmer player uh, as a traveling musician, and here's this thing from her past that's going to bite her in the ass you know it can be scary to say i'm going to be mean to your character um and this is just two great pages about doing that and i think again like you said it's great advice for any player it's great advice for anyone trying to tell a story like sometimes you try to tell a story and it's dragging where there's no stakes uh so first under that is be a fan of each other's characters which is great you don't introduce the trouble from the klezmer's past because you want the klezmer character to be killed you do it because that's when the klezmer character shines when this troubles right on their tail and they're doing crazy plans like you're introducing these troubles because you want to see them triumph over them uh raise the stakes which is very similar embrace conflict between characters as an opportunity for collaboration between players that's the big one for that's me the big least. one that's like the oh, i'm doing this because my character would even though it annoys everyone else here oh my god uh <laughs> And then don't stress about, quote, getting the party together, which is, um, you know, I think in my experience, not as big a problem, but I definitely see people, again, spend a lot of time on that subreddit. I see people ask, like, I'm starting Apocalypse World. What's the correct party balance or whatever? Or like, how do I get them all to be friends? And it's like, this game is not about party balance or getting them to be friends. It's about throwing a bunch of firecrackers in a fire and seeing when they pop off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of all I got. I mean, we can keep talking about it, but I've, I've hit all my big things. I, I was worried that my big things would take up too much time because I have more big things, but uh, let's keep going. We got, uh, it's only 45 minutes that we've been recording. If you want. I know, um, this is the new year, new me. I'm not saying podcast over. I'm saying, <laughs> Let's keep this train a rolling. Podcast Next stop, Snacktown. It's a six-hour podcast now. <laughs> um, I don't know. I was thinking about this. I posted a little bit about this in the Discord because I've been thinking about this whole... I, I forever am always thinking about where like sexuality exists in game design and gameplay, right? And and one of the things that I really like, and this may not even be a huge long thing, but one of the things really that I really like about at least Stream Askew is that the queer sexuality is is both implicit and explicit <laughs> in here um and that it it solves a little bit of the difficulty that i think some people have where when they put any kind of sex or sexuality content or adjacent content into their game they worry their game becomes a sex game you know like there's this <laughs> And I think one, don't worry about that because you're not worried that your game's a murder game because you put murder in it. Um, well, it's also like you people will put straight sexuality into their game or their book or their story, and no one's banning horny cishet romance books from libraries, even oh, though they're way more sexually <laughs> explicit than most like queer YA romances. Uh, also, usually not focused on consent, but uh, the. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, and there's, but there's, there's something that's happening in this book where it's so, 
intentional that that's a part of what the messiness is going to be here, right? Like this book is, this game is about conflict and conflict comes in many flavors and so many games, like the reason that we arguably make games is to come up with fun little ways to engage with conflict. Um, And because again, that's where your player shines Um, or that's where your character shines. That's where everybody shines is in moments of conflict. Um, And I think that, you know, generally we think of conflict in games or, you know, on mass, we think of conflicts in games as being about uh, like difficult scenarios that can be solved either through skill or violence and people are very afraid i think i I don't know there's some in my mind and this could be totally wrong and whatever at me if it's don't i mean at me nicely or whatever but um i'm putting forth an opportunity for everybody to experience conflict with this statement uh and (laughs) (laughs) but there is a link like something happened in 3.5 where everybody was talking about D&D being offensive because of charm spells. <laughs> I feel like there was oh, a hot moment it was, where charm oh God, spells were this. the thing we were all mad about. They introduced like a love cleric or a romance <laughs> cleric <laughs> or something. And and they were like, this romance cleric can charm people. Or I, I Yeah. And like, I'm getting it wrong, but I remember it's... You and I'm not saying flashbacks. it's not gross. I'm not saying that like charm spells aren't gross, right? Because they're like, yes, the, there is this whole like... They can be gross. They also are like a bit of a state. Getting stabbed in the guts also is not a thing I consent to frequently when right. I'm playing games. Right. Like there's lots of things that you don't consent to. And if you're playing the, 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 the like is arguably what we're building rules around. But there was this huge thing about charm spells. And and I feel like it's, I'm not even making a comment about the conversation about charm spells. What, I, right. what I'm making a comment on is the backlashes that I think designers became terrified of making any rules that could be abused like a charm spell. And so just ran away from putting any social interaction rules and any identity rules and any sexuality rules, like anything that touched on anything around the way that D and D did it and any of the conversation people just became afraid of. And I feel like it had this huge fallout in relation to how people design sex and sexuality in games and why sex and sexuality got relegated to supplementary material, which is where it always lives, right? It's either a sex game or it's here's this source book of extra things that you could do like romance on the spaceship or whatever. And I think that's a specific module and I don't mean to call out that module. There is some mothership module that is about romance on a spaceship that is what copped into my brain and I haven't even read it and I'm sure it's super fun. It's just yeah, like, it does, I was like, that sounds rad. Yeah, I think it's cool. Um, and it's not that those things aren't cool. It's that they're always, they are always supplementary versus all of the other things that you don't consent to being ubiquitous, right? Like you, you being like violence being omnipresent uh, and it not being because so much of the criticism of all of the the sex and romance and social stuff is about consent, but somehow that's excluded from the conversation about violence. This is such a complex conversation, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have really explicit thing, conversations right. about consent in your games. I just was struck as I was reading this about by how clever it is to put all of that stuff in as a required, not even required, as a like inherent part of conflict, right? Like conflict is always going to be super social. Conflict is always going to be 
is often frequently romantic <laughs> when it is social, right? Even if it's not directly about two characters being romantically interested in one another, like this is, you can't, in, to me, putting like familial relationships in a game and not putting sexual or romantic relationships in a game is silly and weird because those things are inherently connected. You know, like they're, they're, right. there's all this stuff. And, and I mean, what I really wanted to say was like the way that it's done through questions and pick lists as making it really apparent that because it's in it's largely in the playbooks, right? Where all of the different playbooks will have gender pick lists or your lure or all of these different pick lists that help you choose what your character is about and not an insignificant amount of them can be romantic or kind of sexual. Mm-hmm. Um and they one that makes them kind of optional, but two, it makes them really present in the game design, right? It makes them really present as far as what the game statement as a reader, as somebody who's engaging with the game, you are constantly confronted with the the reality that queerness and sexuality is a part of this world while being able to totally opt out of it. Um, and also just kind of makes it fun to like engage with, um, And I feel like kind of really solves that fear that a lot of people have, where if I put something so explicitly in, it's going to, people are going to come at me for being concerned that I'm controlling their, like their character's sexuality or whatever, or that there's an option to control sex or sexuality in this game, um, as opposed to just making it things that players opt into. And the, the second layer being that that's inherently queering those characters. Like all those characters are super queer, even though you could pick all the straight options if you wanted. (laughs) Um, I don't know. There's some, there was something as I was reading it that was like, Oh, it feels like a little bit of a solve for that fear that I feel like I see all the time. And, uh, without, without making, without like falling into any of the pitfalls and totally legitimate criticisms of where that fear comes from. Well, to me, it seems like because a lot of that is about when I play a role-playing game, I know my character is going to be endangered. Mm-hmm. It, me personally. Uh, and that can be mentally endangered, uh, physically endangered. You know, some games have safety tools that encourage me to set limits on that. Um but depending on who I'm playing with and what the game is, like I'm okay with my character being kind of psychologically endangered in kind of a self-doubt way or romantic. I mean, romantically endangered is a stupid way to put it. It's a subset of physically endangered, but like I'm okay with my character being charmed. Uh, and I also get that that's a privilege of mine. And lots of people maybe are not okay with that. Um, but like, yeah, I guess I mean, I this think- is just, this is my version of saying, the solution is not to remove charm spells or kind of uh, pushes toward romance or physical intimacy or physical endangerment of like a, a sexual nature. I'm not saying games should be about sexual assault or anything, but I just mean we have language to say this is a game about characters who will at some point be endangered. Um, here are some tools to use to set boundaries on what kinds of danger are okay uh yeah like you're using lines and veils already so making violence and sex a a normal part of your game is gonna get like probably is what i mean you're using lines and veils anyway right like i've never sat i i feel like of all the games i've played that have used lines and veils 
more of the lines and veils are about specific kinds of violence than are about sex. And that yeah. might just be my crew, but like, there's always a couple, like default is usually sexual assault that goes on there. Yeah, absolutely. First step. Outside I feel like, like the ones I see all the time are sexual assault and like endangerment of children, physical totally. endangerment of children. Yeah. And then there's like a whole bunch of other ones. Like sometimes, it, you know, for me, there might be a like, oh, sometimes underwater stuff makes me feel squeaky and I don't feel like dealing with it right. today. Right. Like everybody has your, your things that you throw on that list and it, and I think as designers, you can trust a little bit that your players are going to make that list. And I think I think the reason that people put so much violence in their game is because they do trust that people are going to make those lists, right? Like, and they're going to trust that violence is used righteously. Yeah. Uh, often, which is, I think there's a way to say also, if you put sex or romance into your game, players it's just so hard though because i don't want some people to put sex and romance into their games uh because i don't, don't want to play them. those people's games anyway right, to be honest right, yeah. like i don't want to play it's their violent so games either yeah. like that's what i mean right it's like yeah there's a bunch of assholes and they're just not a part of the conversation that i'm having anyway <laughs> and yeah. for everybody who's not an asshole uh you, I think people should feel as they should figure out how to feel as comfortable putting sex and romance in their games as they do violence. And this is like, maybe this is a conversation, maybe I will ask some friends if they would be open to having this conversation in a bigger format because I also, like I recently had an interesting conversation with a friend that wasn't very deep. We were just kind of chatting a little bit who um, is ace and was expressing that like a game had a little bit too much sexuality in it um, and were close enough that I was able to be like, yeah, but you don't, you don't go around murdering people either. Like you're nonviolent as well as you as a human is, are nonviolent. Right. And, and, but you're comfortable engaging with violence in a fantasy context, but there is something, and I don't think this isn't true. There is something about sex that makes it different. Right. And, but trying I, to, I mean, I am thankful that there is, that sex and violence are different. Well, yes, <laughs> they're not always different, though. No, they're not um, always different. Absolutely in bad not. and good ways. Um, right. But yes, like, absolutely. Yeah, like, but there is something about it that is different. And so it's not, I'm not trying to say that it's not different. But I do think there is an interesting, I do wonder if part of the part of that difference just comes from our own unwillingness to deal with our discomfort. And what I like about this game is that the whole game is about dealing with your discomfort. And so of course, that includes sex and romance. Yeah. And I wish more games were up up for trying to challenge their players to deal with their discomfort, as opposed to defaulting to the things that people are really comfortable with. Because of course, that's violence. Because we live in a world where violence is ever present. And we should be questioning why it is we're so comfortable with that and so uncomfortable with other things and maybe challenging that a little bit in our game design as well, you know, uh, is really what I was thinking while I was reading about all the sex. Also, just like it's fun to pick. It's fun. To, it's fun when pick lists involve like a dirty little freak options. I'm we're doing firebrands next. And I'm so excited for you to read some of these firebrands games. Dirty, dirty little freak games is what I'm hearing. It's uh, I'm not. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm excited for you to read them. I think they're some of the. I'm not going to say best. I'm going to say some of the most inspiring uh, examples of like physical intimacy in games that I have read. 
maybe this will be the one of the notes that I took when I was reading this was like, oh, I think it's possible that like my heartbreaker fantasy game is part Dream Askew. And part oh, like my yeah. my my heartbreaker fantasy game is for sure modular where you play different games for different kinds of sections, right? Like where Again, there is another reason you're gonna love yeah, firebrands. Yeah, yeah. Uh where it for sure is like the rules for, you know, you you can throw a little like map-based, grid-based contact combat thing in there, but then also like I still love Ryutama because there's so much of just like traveling around as little guys, which is a little bit and the idea of like taking something like this and having it be your your home base or even your camp at night or whatever section um baldur's gate you've been baldur's gate pilled uh (laughs) correct kind of a little bit um but yeah and they do feel like that's part of it is like just putting in character and feelings options kind of in a but it still feels like in this kind of fantastical world, in this in this fantasy genre world a little bit, um, without it feels like it feels like an accurate because of its inclusion of things beyond violence, it feels like a more accurate and compelling fantasy narrative toolkit than things that are centered around violence and then put supplementary rules outside of violence, I think right. is what I'm trying to say. Uh, very long-windedly. <laughs> also, Every- mechanically, all the moves are GM-style moves, which was a thing I thought we were going to talk about, but we didn't. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> we don't have to. They're just It's just a weird, They're like, good. oh, these moves don't do the thing that I like in moves, which is give me oh, a bunch of fun outcomes. Give you a pick list. Yeah, because you're not rolling. Because so. you're not rolling. Well, you could um, still do it without rolling. You could be like, oh, you're using a token. Now you get to pick these things. Oh, you Whatever. could spend extra tokens to get mm. extra. Ooh, it could be. It could here's be your hack. This is your could hack. Be done. Uh, now I'm calling it. Okay. I do want to say one more time. I want to play Dream Apart really bad. I think all the stuff we talked about regarding gender and sexuality. Uh, Benjamin, we're doing first names now. <laughs> Benjamin does really well in Dream Apart uh, vis-a-vis like historical accuracy and um playing in a religious or cultural milieu that maybe you're not a part of um i think he gives a great framework of like here's an outline of what was going on at the time here's an outline of kind of the big touchstones of jewish culture uh here's a little list of words that you might not know the meaning of but also if you're not sure like go back to the first section of the book Asking and correcting and like figuring out ways, throwing it to the table. Um, flirt, I think it's a flirt with a search engine is a phrase that is used, <laughs> I think, somewhere. Right. Um, I think it's, I think that applies to historical games, but also if you're like playing Star Wars or Marvel superheroes, right? There are people out there that are like, actually, that wouldn't be the case if we were playing in the post rebellion era of the New Republic. And it's just sort of like, that's not what we're doing. Like <laughs> we're ju- we're about the characters and involving each other's in this like intimate interaction. I don't care about grand Admiral Thrawn in the year 31 after the battle of Yavin. Anyway, I like, I think we went really deep on dream askew. I get it. That was the first one here. I would happily play dream askew, but dream apart is just like, such a flavorful dish it's a really exciting game to me i don't know 
I, maybe it's because I'm a history school dropout, but I think there's something to be said for playing games where you're not the thing the game is about also, right? Like part of the, like, I'm curious. That's about another fear that, part. That, yeah. that designers have as well sometimes. Well, yeah. yeah, but I'm like curious about playing dream part because dream askew for me is like comfy blanket of familiarity. Right. And dream we are in the post apocalypse. <laughs> I am trying to make a queer little enclave in yeah. the post-apocalypse time, um, whereas Dream Apart is not that, right? And well, I think and part of the discussion between them, and part of the reason I love to read history, is that the things we are going through, people in the past have gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, people have held out against these powers. They've been destroyed by them, and <laughs> a few have escaped to carry the stories out. Um, but like these tools of resistance are useful throughout history. And we can learn some of them by looking back. And so I do love the dialogue created by 19th century semi-fantastical Jewish life and two years from now, queer enclave life. Uh, yeah, tomorrow. I think putting them together, right, strengthens both of them in a really cool way. Yeah, I think they are very good in conversation with one another. Um, okay. Appendix. That's it. Appendix, Appendix M. I have one. Do you have one? Well, what's funny is that this book is full of them. Yes. This book I, is I, full of its own, which is kind yeah. of fun. Is a fun little note about it. There are literal quotes in in many of the uh, playbooks as like, here's some inspiration for what this yes. playbook is. Here's is a cool. character who matches this playbook. Here's someone talking about this playbook in a similar mm-hmm. genre. Here's uh, just some like vibes. They're cool. Although a bunch of them are Margaret Atwood and fuck that. So... Yeah, uh, I don't I think, think this was this pre- is pre. Yeah. I do think that this game written by a trans person is pre knowing that Margaret Atwood is a turf. Yes, correct. Um, yeah, and so I, <laughs> so we'll just remove we'll remove those ones from the book. But uh, but yeah, sure, you go first. Uh, I you might have to time cop me on this one again. I might have mentioned this on a past episode, but my suggestion is. He, She, and It by Marge Piercy. Uh, it should just be recommended as many times as possible. So This I is won't. such a good book. Uh, so good. Marge Piercy has written poetry, like slice of life literary stuff, weird sci-fi. And this is about, it's an early cyberpunk novel, but it's about a Jewish enclave in the cyberpunk world uh, resisting, you know, corpo, whatever life. And... Uh, one of the people is building uh, a human seeming Android, you know, undiscernible, indiscernible from human, but an artificial intelligence. It is uh, compared and contrasted with old stories of, uh, Oh my God, I got of <laughs> which one is Gollum and which one is Gollum? Gollum is the Hobbit. <laughs> I got so fucked up about. Oh, you mean like reading. just pronunciation of the same? Yes, it's word. not yes, a golem because yeah. that's the little creep. Uh, it is compared and contrasted to old stories of the golem, which is told, you know, mentioned in Dream Apart. Um, so it's this weird mix of Dream Askew and Dream Apart, but also in this one, the robot gets to fuck. <laughs> Someone gets to fuck the robot explicitly. Uh, it's such a good story. It's a story about resistance and how the tools of past resistance can inform future strategies and it's a horny cyberpunk story that is not uh you know anti-asian in the way that so many or like exploitative yes. of asian cultures um yeah yeah it's good 
It's very good. Everybody it's should really read good. it. It's really good. I might reread it this year, although my to be read to be read book is still taunting me. So um yeah, I mean I feel like the one that came up for me was that I feel I feel like I've also recommended it, but like if Dream Askew isn't just Becky Chambers, I don't know what like Becky Chambers is just here's a bunch of weird little people trying to survive. Usually sometimes it's space, so maybe maybe a little less apocalyptic, but like against harsh circumstances. Usually the harsh like harsh environmental and like socio-political circumstances, um, getting being messy uh with one another and like not always agreeing and trying to figure out how to survive regardless. Um, literally any of them. <laughs> like you could just pick any Becky Chambers novel and they're all this. Um, but I actually had two because as I have recommended this enough, this is in my favorite books of 2023. Um, but as I was reading this today, um, I was thinking that I would love to play the Dream Askew hack that is um, the only safe place left is the dark uh by warren wagner i don't know why i keep forgetting his first name uh, probably because i don't know him warren wagner um <laughs> we've been stuck on first names this whole yeah episode, too. So. Uh, it's really good it's a novella it kind of um it it's central world building conceit is uh there is a zombie apocalypse and holy the, shit i'm reading this it's so good and the medication uh that one takes if uh you are hiv positive or have aids is the thing that protects you from uh developing <laughs> the zombie <laughs> disease wow. uh and yeah it's wild it's so good um and it's just a short little guy and it's really good and it is all post-apocalyptic queer little queer queer little guys trying to survive in the uh post-apocalypse so it I'm feels very, very happy that we're getting more books about these the books, crisis yeah. because I feel like that was uh, not a forgotten, but an actively resisted time of historical resistance. Um, yeah. Actively erased, I guess I should say. And um, it's cool that people are making these now and going back and doing oral histories. And it's like in our pandemic times, it's a nice reminder that like people will make it through and people will it's, carry things forward. It's so interesting to me because people like it's the parallels are so ever present and people yes. are really ignoring them. This is a like really deep queer culture thing that angers me every time I see a lot of queer people not masking or caring about one another. And it's just this weird thing where I'm like, we have so much precedent. We are supposed to know better. <laughs> Right. This is uh, uh, but the cover so. of the only safe place left is dark. Is the dark is mm -hmm. like a bloody pink triangle, which is mm -hmm. like the act up symbol as well. What's that classic image? Oh, it's David Voynerovich. Uh, if I die of AIDS, forget burial, just drop my body on the steps of the FDA. Yep. Uh, it's, the, it's over a pink triangle on the back of a jacket. David Voynerovich. We should talk about at some point. Uh, just as a great artist. Um, it's it's all like very right now. Uh, mm -hmm. I feel like mm -hmm. all of this is very right now um, and is super good. And yeah, it's lovely. It's also, it is a novella. So it is, I read it in one sitting. Um, if you are a person who is listening to this from Toronto, I think it is available at Little Ghosts, which is, I think that was where the book launch happened. Um, and because I know it is an indie press. And so I think it can be a little tricky in Canada, but Little Ghosts has it 
So, you know, support your local indie bookstore and buy it and read it over coffee one morning. It's phenomenal. It is not that just, it is definitely aligned with Red X, which I know I have talked about before, which is another uh, queer horror novel that kind of has a similar vibe. But yeah, it's really good. I want to mash it. I tweeted this. I want to mash it together with Dream Askew. I want to make the Dream Askew the only safe place left is the dark. I want to make them kiss. Is what I'm saying. I want to make them kiss. This is my I'm, dream. I can't talk right now because I'm busy ordering this from my <laughs> local bookstore. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. Uh, all right. I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that in a second when we're done. Um, yeah. Discord, again, If in case you forgot, you can hang out with us. Patreon, in case you forgot, it costs a dollar. You get a bunch of episodes. Um, Speed, Room, Speed Room Jam is still yeah. ongoing. Uh, we're still reading the Iliad in the Discord. Uh, I've finished it. We're probably going to do some kind of wrap up toward the middle of the month, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't there know. might be some Patreon nonsense about the Iliad about and the all Iliad. of their hot nipples. I guess they're all their pierced, of, their pierced lot nipples. Of bronze spears piercing someone just below the nipple. Just below the nipple, which I guess uh, is a good way to describe their their death. Ex- but uh, Achilles and Patroclus, they're. They're, they're gay, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're banging. Um, again, sexuality across history. What a wild, what a wild thing to be alive in a time where it's like, no, there's only one kind of sex. <laughs> and then you look at the written record of humanity and it's like people are banging all over all kinds of different ways. And those hollow ships be rocking. <laughs> <laughs> that has to be the end of the podcast. Okay, fine. Goodbye. <laughs>